we're seeing a really strong dip around half a million dollars in revenue. My guess is because we're seeing a lot of friction against your lifestyle there. So it's like, all right, I'm doing half a million dollars in revenue. I'm making 150, 200,000, maybe a quarter mil, depends on how you set up the business. And I need that to live. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, we're live. This is an interesting week for me and you, boss man, because we have spoken with over 50 podcast listeners in the past couple of weeks. That's a lot of Zoom time. You know what's so cool? We put up these Calendly links or whatever links we're using. We need to switch from Calendly to something else. But you go to these calls and you have different offers and you see different people. And I think we were really impressed by what the listeners of this show are up to. And today we're going to share five of our observations from speaking with over 50 of you. We're going to talk about traction, the visionary versus integrator paradox. We're going to talk about the four-day work week. So stick around to all that. So here's the, the basically the setup, Ian. Me and you launched this new program called DC Scale. And it's based on this framework we've been thinking about we went to the woodshed last year to deal with the fact that our company was growing fast and we needed new ways to think about our growth. And so we went to all the usual suspects. We kind of came up with this Venn diagram idea where like, there's kind of like three different dimensions of growing the business. There's the personal dimension. What does Andrew Humanman talk about? You got to have good dopamine levels. You got to do the right amount of pushups every day. There's something behind the story, which is like, relationships are important. So I make sure to reach out to 4.3 people every day that I genuinely care about trademark. All right, cool. I do all that stuff. That's great. <laughs> I do all that stuff too. Multi-million dollar business and I ain't never taken one cold shower either. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we get the personal stuff. Take your cold showers. Call 4.3 people you care about every day. The next element is that industry stuff. Joining a mastermind of people that like all have course businesses or all do e-commerce businesses or something like that, like that's a, an industry thing or go to a conference. Like I saw e-commerce fuel happen last week. And if you run an e-commerce business, why not go to e-commerce fuel to learn about like what's going on in that industry? Then you got what DC scale, this new product that we've been building is sort of like, what are the core strategies of business creation itself? What is the competitive landscape in your industry? What is your ideal client profile? What is your repeatable marketing strategy? How do you hire and onboard people in your business? How do you evaluate people on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis? These are all things that like, I don't care if you're selling livestock, if you're selling Smarties in the express aisle, or if you're selling SEO productized services, ultimately you're going to need this stuff. And that's really what DC Scale is all about. I like it because it's Socratic. I like it because it applies across a broad range of industries. And I like it because it's nerdy. I really enjoy finding these systems that lay below value delivery and making them explicit. So that's sort of the framework. We were on sales calls. That's what these 50 calls were. Yeah, I mean, we, we launched this in the first quarter, had over 20 companies join. It looks like about the same for quarter two. So 
I just want to point out that I, you know, I was the one running these sales calls, so you can congratulate me for the most part. Great Thank job. you very much. Yeah. Employee of the month. You get the first parking space. In Google Meet, you're in the top left. Okay. <laughs> All right. But my point is, when we ran the second cohort, and this is kind of a tangent, I didn't realize that I was going to Colorado on a family ski vacation during basically the sales launch. And I just couldn't take all these calls. It wasn't going to be possible. And you kept begging me basically for like two weeks up to that to switch the calendar to yours. And I was like, uh, I think I'll just do it from the ski lift. He's making excuses like he's like, I don't know how to switch. There's no switch function in a Google Cal. It got down to like two days before the trip. And I was like, I actually don't have a solution for how (laughs) I'm going to take these calls. I guess I'm going to have to hand it on to you. And my fears were realized. I talked to these people after you talked to them. I was worried about a couple of things. I was worried about instead of selling the product, you would offer them a free book that they could read to solve their problems. (laughs) You would offer them a bike ride in Austin. You would offer them something else that wasn't our product. And all of my fears were came true. So thank you very much. <laughs> my sales prowess is well documented. It's just so fun talking to podcast listeners, man. I want to say two observations at the top before we get into like the five maybe hangups that are common and shared across the businesses that we talk to. So we should say that at the top, like we're really talking about like five observations that are maybe holding businesses back that were communicated to us. Number one, the degree of openness that these founders had was still remarkable to me. So here's how these calls went. They were like, uh, I don't know, have you ever heard of brutalist architecture? These were like brutalist sales calls. So it's like, hey, I don't know, productize Paul. How you doing productize Paul? Muck it up just for 30 seconds and it's like, bam, what's your revenue? What's your core URL? How many employees do you have? Do you have a COO yet? What's her name? Where is she located? How would you rate her performance on a scale of one? Bam, bam, bam. What's the key problem in your business? And it was like rapid fire. It was like an Aaron Sorkin script. It was like back to the West Wing days. Two people just bam, bam, bam. And it was cool. Like not in all of the calls I was on did one person hesitate to answer truthfully about every element of their business. And even like, hey, I have no idea about that. That's something I haven't thought about. And so I want to say, sometimes we come on the pod and we say, man, a lot of founders have hangups. They're not willing to face the truth, man. You got to face the truth. That's not what I was hearing on these phone calls. I was like, these are truth seekers. <laughs> it's like a lot of people willing to face the music. I thought that was really cool. So one observation there. Another thing, broadly speaking, these companies seem to fall into two different groups, something we're going to talk about. But there seems to be a specific set of problems that you have when you've gotten past the 1,000 day principle, which is probably our most talked about thing here. Essentially, it takes you to call it three years, a thousand days to replace your professional income with the business. Now, one of the ways that will often happen is with, say, a service or an e-com or a software business that is doing half a million dollars in sales and you staff up, you get a couple of assistants or contractors, and now you're making like 150 out of that 500, which is a really nice margin in theory, but it's also what a lot of people need to live. So that tends to be one type of company and they need a certain sort of things. And then you've got the companies that have scaled. They're on their way to a million dollars or way beyond. And they tend to need another set of things more operationally, typically. In the earlier phase, they need more marketing and strategy. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Those are just the sort of 
top level things. And I just want to point out also the companies, the 50 companies that we talked to were extremely diverse, which is part of the reason I like this business operational stuff, Ian, is that it can sort of apply to anyone, any yeah. founder, however mm-hmm. they want. We talked to e-commerce company, productized services. We talked to real estate companies and funds. We talked to software companies, lead generation companies, coaches, and much, much more. So it was really, really cool. Media companies as well. So let's dig into it. We, again, to sum up, have identified five key observations to speaking over 50 of you. The first, the 500K stall that happens at the end of the 1,000-day principle. We talk about these steps you got to get through. Vern Harnish talks about it. The frame of the Rockefeller Habits book was basically like, here are the different jumps. It's like, you found a business and you don't fail. Cool. You're not one of the eight out of 10 small businesses that fails. Now, bam, you get to replace your professional income with that. That's a whole scale. Only a certain percentage get there. Get to seven figures. Man, you're like one of the 5% of companies that get to seven figures. Now you get to eight figures. It's like, basically, I met like two or three people in my whole life who got to eight figures, you know, or whatever it is. Like, there's these drop-offs and you have to get through these troughs. Seth Godin wrote a book about these troughs called The Dip. And so we're seeing a really strong dip around half a million dollars in revenue. My guess is because we're seeing a lot of friction against your lifestyle there. So it's like, all right, I'm doing half a million dollars in revenue. I'm making 150, 200,000, maybe a quarter mil. Depends on how you've set up the business. And I need that to live. So I'm going to be underinvested essentially in my business from like a 50,000 foot view because that profit margin is my mortgage. It's my vacation. It's my family expenses. And I'm not going to reinvest back into the business aggressively because I'm reinvesting into my lifestyle. And I just don't know if it's going to work if I invest. But the problem with the 500K stall is something at some point starts to kind of give. Well, I actually don't want to work 40 hours. That's a problem for me. So I'd like to bring in an operator so I can kind of step back and like work on this other business or do something else. I need more money or... I want to sell this business. That's another thing that happens. So there's a bunch of things that happen at the 500K stall. It can be a planned stall too. We saw a lot of planned stalls where the flight instructor takes you out and turns the yoke and you start doing a reverse nosedive or whatever. And it's like, hey, we planned this because I actually am not ambitious about getting to a million dollars. I'm ambitious about working 10 hours a week and raising my family. So that was a really interesting archetype too, where it's like, I actually don't want to grow. I want to buttress and preserve. And I don't want the fact that I'm raising a family for the next four years to interfere with this amazing cash flow I've built. Which I think is actually like really uh, cool. You look at the profiles on LinkedIn, homeboy working at Goldman Sachs for 15 years as some kind of GM pulling down the same kind of money. And uh, he had to go to an office every day and he missed those trips to Thailand. What's more gangster? You tell me. All right. So number one, the five, half a million dollar stall. Number two, these are the invisible men and women of the internet. What do we mean by this? What's incredible about all these people that we're talking about? You're probably thinking, well, hot damn, guys. Why don't you share with me their Twitter profiles so I can go stalk them on the internet and hear all the juicy tidbits about how I can improve my life? They don't post there. Tell you what, they're not putting juicy <laughs> tidbits out on the internet. These people, by and large, don't have a social media presence. It's something in general, this like signal noise kind of stuff on the web 
that's been somewhat of an obsession for me. So I'm looking for it. And when it comes through that, I'm seeing a lot of people that are really hard to track down on the web that don't have a personal brand on the web. They don't talk about their entrepreneurial journey. I find it really fascinating because they represent most of the journey. So in other words, even in today's day and age when there's more people to follow than followers and everybody's a brand and stuff. Well, I'm sorry, like most of these entrepreneurs are just not brands and they're just not talking about it. And they really don't need to. The vast majority of people we spoke with have a personal network. They using channels like events, industry contacts, and referrals to bring in the key relationships that they need in their business. They're not necessarily using internet marketing funnels to bring customers into their business. I don't do this often during these calls, but a couple times I was like trying to figure it out. So I would click off to the website and then I would click on something and like literally the contact form would be broken. And they are like a one percenter, like a huge earner. And it's like, oh, your website's like just broken. It's like, yeah, like it doesn't seem to make a difference, actually. And I think that's really cool. And here's the danger. I was talking with somebody. Uh, they have one of these websites and they're doing, um, you know, around the range of revenue that we're talking about here. And uh, they were like, yeah, like, you know, I have all these people approaching me, you know, SEO services, 100 grand a year. Like, should I do it? And all this stuff. I'm like, why would you do that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need these people. Even if your goal was to be a $2 million business, the worst idea in the world is to hire the person that says they can do SEO for $100,000 a year for you. Like, do not do that. <laughs> Speaking of hiring, that's our third point. The entrepreneurs and founders that we spoke with the past few weeks seem to be a grade A at hiring and a grade B at managing. I don't know where to draw the exact line, but it's basically like, I feel like our listeners are incredibly sophisticated when it comes to where to hire, what the costs are, what the different opportunities are, like that should be a, a VA in the Philippines or that should be a developer in Brazil or I'm thinking about you know doing it this way. But maybe grade B at managing. I don't know if this is like hangovers from previous careers where we didn't like managing people. Maybe managing people's just a pain in the butt, a little lack of confidence about bringing in A players into their organizations or why these are a opportunities for a lot of us you know we remember the sleep on the couch days of our business and i think as you get towards you hit seven figures and you go beyond and it's time for the a player engagement you just still think of yourself as the couch dweller so i think that that's where a lot of this b management stuff comes in you know not having onboarding processes or even a philosophy not having clarity around what the roles are and why they're interested in the marketplace a lot of the expertise is really weighted on that initial idea of like, I can get this for that there. But then not really the bigger picture of like the A players, what they're doing, why they're here, and how they're going to help grow the business. And understandably, it's a hard thing. I think it's a process. And that's a process that not a lot of people are used to when they're just hitting seven figures. All right, so what do we got so far? We've talked about the 500K stall, the invisible man or woman. Grade A at hiring, grade B at managing, and we'll go to number four, solo recording artist mentality. What is it? All right. I noodled in my basement. I came up with some killer hooks, killer songs, and I just want session players. Come in and play the music I wrote for you. I don't want your commentary. 
You're saying that it's only your name on the album? Is that what's going on here? I don't want your mouth in my ear. I want your mouth on the trumpet. I already wrote down what you're going to play. Okay. It's an SOP. Call it what you want. Play the song and get out of here. It's cheap. You know what? I don't want a trumpeter from New York City. Bring in somebody from further down south or better yet, South America. We need the cheapest trumpeter that can play these notes. That's what I need. <laughs> and the reality is, is like these businesses, they build up around your skill sets, your relationships, like we talked about, your network. And the big question is with all these scale questions is, are we going to be able to bring in contributors that allow us to scale? And that's one of the interesting things we've seen is like how you make those breakthroughs. And we got to do an episode about it, Ian, where we're talking about the half a million dollar stall, seven figure businesses, but we're seeing a lot of businesses in our community that are mid seven figures that are moving their way to eight and eight figure businesses. I think a lot of people start off being the solo uh, recording artist, but not a lot of people want to stay there. A lot of people might be open to the idea of having a co-founder. They might be open to the idea of like having really high level people in their business. So it's not that they're stuck necessarily, but I think a lot of people start there and then they can't figure out how to get out of there. I'm reminded of the song Leather and Lace by Stevie Nicks and Don Henley. I mean, this is when two superpowers come together. Sometimes they can put something out amazing. It's so... I, I just think this is like not a great mechanism for that conversation to happen a lot of times. And you kind of see it, you know, sometimes companies will join forces and stuff, but it's, it's kind of rare actually in our industry and at the scale that people have these types of conversations. So just because you start off as a solo recording artist doesn't mean you have to stay that way. Cool. Final one. We're going to call it pulling punches. This relates to that 500K stall, which I think is really the theme. I guess because for me, it was like, you know, you look for surprising and counterintuitive insights. And for a lot of the seven and mid seven figure companies, a lot of the challenges they're facing are more reliable in my mind. So it's like, all right, we need to do a change in management. We need to recruit somebody. We need to fire somebody. We need to install rhythm. We need to install accountability. We need to improve alignment. These things are clear. And like, we very much designed DC scale around these issues because those were the issues that we were facing and that we really felt. But what surprised me was this 500K stall and the fact that I felt like a lot of the entrepreneurs at that level were pulling their punches. What does that mean? I mean, it means like maybe the referral engine, the event engine, your personal network has gotten you to a point where you're making a good income and now you're, you're essentially underinvested in your business. Your net profit might be 25% and you're doing everything and you're doing it through conversations and relationships, projects, whatever. And the idea that you're going to take that next aggressive move eludes you or scares you or you want your hand held through it. The hand holding was a term that many people were using. And I can understand because it's like, I've built this amazing thing I know I need to take like another set of risks that are of a different order. Yeah. We quit our jobs. For a lot of us, that was like the riskiest thing we ever did. The next yeah. thing, you convince your spouse that you're going to do this. That's the second riskiest thing. You're taking all these emotional and personal risks and now you're required to do a different sort of risk taking to get to like seven figures and beyond. And I really felt like that was a theme of these calls. Like, can you hold my hand through these things I know I need to do? I know I need to take some of my salary and invest it in a lieutenant or an operator. I yeah. know I need to like niche down and like focus on repeatable marketing processes or marketing experiments. 
but can you hold my hand? Because that's 25% of my personal income. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I don't think it's weak at all. I think it's like the strongest thing you can do. Weak is wanting to do it and not doing it, basically. Cool. So that's it to recap. 50 calls, five insights, 50K stall, the invisible man or woman, grade A at hiring, grade B at managing, solo recording artist mentality, (laughs) and pulling punches. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. All right. Is the integrator and visionary framework bullshit? Something that comes up in the talk of scale a lot is, I would say, the most popular scale framework in the entrepreneurial space is probably Traction or Entrepreneurial Organizational System. It's a book written by Gino Wickham. It's been purchased over a million times. It, in our community, the ideas around how to like build a business are becoming almost synonymous with what gets communicated in the pages of Traction. And I would say the most viral concept from that book is the distinction between a visionary and an integrator. And how it's really cashed out is anybody who reads the book essentially thinks they're a visionary. And what then you need to hire is somebody as described in the book who are quite rare and they're called an integrator. Classic marketing, tell people how they're deficient. Shorthand for this would be CEO, COO. One person's looking to tomorrow, one person's looking to today. You could say founder and lieutenant. But I think your analysis is probably closer to the truth because there's no way this actual ratio is four to one self-reported as read in the book. I think what happens in the book is that all the cool things about running a company, all the best parts are described as visionary and all the hard parts are described as integrator. You might not agree with me on this, but the things about the visionary are essentially like what would be ready at hand if you own a business at all. You've made connections, you've built products, you've talked to the people about the next products you're going to do, all these kinds of things. You built the vision, stuff like this. Basically eating ice cream for dinner every day. I actually had this emotion, and now that we're, I think, have essentially a product that has a similar value proposition, I might as well just start chucking mud. I'm on the record, and this is years ago before I had a vested interest. I kind of got angry when I read Traction the first time. And the reason, was similar to some, now that I'm talking to a lot of people about it, they were angry too. And I feel like we're starting a little group and we're going to call it, I too was mad when I read Traction. Because it just made everything so damn complicated. And no wonder people would finish the book and say, I don't want to be any of those things. Yet, the promise of the book is that when you have them, 
you will run a stress-free organization. And so therefore, I need the thing that the book promises. But since they're so rare, I suppose I'll hire the book's company to do the things that the book this is a useful visionary and integrator, maybe, but I think it's actually probably more useful as marketing than as genuine concepts. I think a lot of people just don't end up capturing the value that Traction has to offer because they don't identify with the stuff in the book because it is talked about like this monolithic systemic thing. Even people that run $1 million lifestyle businesses, they can get laughed out of the room at some of this stuff because it's you know, like as if their businesses can't benefit from some of the things in these pages. And I think what happens is a lot of people just don't end up doing it. How many people have you met who have said, oh, you know, I'm, ha- I'm a quarter traction. I'm a nickel traction. I took two, th- we did a level 10, but now it's just a level seven and a half in our VoIP. It's all these like acronyms. It's like, if you have a $7 million business that has a boardroom, and four people that wear business outfits and sit in there and talk about their divisions, then, you know, maybe traction is something that you should look into. But what I'm starting to see is like, if you've got a couple million dollars in revenue and a bunch of contractors all around the globe, maybe what you need is something more fractal, more modular, and like more sniper rifle. Like, hey, I can put this one thing in and it makes all the difference. And our system will continue to organically grow, as will the role of the person who founded the company. And what's most important for them, forget about their identification as a, this type of person or that type of, like a personality assessment, but rather, are you an effective executive in this company at this point? I think is a, probably a better way to look at it. Nobody grows up thinking, I want to be a visionary or an integrator. That's one thing about it. So like... <laughs> You're not in high school being like, ah, when I grow up, I just want to be an integrator. For me, integrator really just means some kind of COO or managing director or operations person. And I think we've helped companies, several companies find these people before. And it solves different problems depending on what you're trying to achieve. Not everyone is trying to continue to be the visionary in their company. A lot of people are like trying to start new companies. A lot of people are trying to just focus on sales or design or like whatever it is. And like they need somebody to help them organize their company. I don't think these things are so cut and dry as like visionary and integrator. I think it like really depends on like what you're trying to achieve in your business. Are you trying to exit your business? Are you trying to work less in your business, more in your business? Do you want a different role in your business? It doesn't all just come down to visionary or integrator for me. There's actually a lot of work we've been doing internally about what those things are looking like across these companies. And so that's the future here is to just stop making fun of it and to start supplying a solution. So, well, I'll just say this too, like, um, you know, scaling up to me was like a much better book because it felt like you could like pick and pull like what you needed from it. So in terms of like, yeah, frameworks, I think, or it might be a good idea to like beg, borrow and steal from like a bunch of different things. The one thing that I can't really relate to and scaling up is like how big the companies are. So these are all like fortune, like 50 and like 100 companies that like their sole purpose in the world is like generate revenue and dividends for their shareholders. You're probably not running that type of business if you're a lifestyle business. So like a lot of these things aren't going to make sense to you. The fact that we're 40 isn't all downside. Like we remember things from 20 years ago. And like one of the things I remember from 20 years ago is like, 
the amount of op, like founders that we meet that are like making seven figures a year, personal income, the level of professionalization has gone up in terms of personal income of the founders. So what I would guess is 20 years ago, like I would encounter these companies with like $3 million in revenue and like a board and a CEO and a CEO, you know what I mean? Like all this kind of professionalization, whereas nowadays you have a company that's making $1.5 million a year for the founder and like they're running it like a lifestyle business. And so they don't have all these layers of like, let's turn it into a corporation right away. And so I think that there's just a call out there for like something a little bit more agile and something that feels a little bit more native to this, the types of businesses. And the good news is, like you said, beg, bar, and steel, there's a lot of things in here that work great. You know what I mean? It's just like, we don't all have to behave like we work at AT&T the moment you hit $1.5 million in revenue. All right. Visionary integrator. Is it bullshit? Yeah, maybe. Does it matter? Maybe not. Up to you guys. Next thing I want to mention here. We talked about channels for companies, Ian. There was a book that was recently referred to me by Taylor Pearson. It's called The Coaching Habit. It's a cool little book. One of the things I noticed on the front page is that it sold over a million copies. So that's kind of interesting. Probably found ourselves in some airports here and there. And then you open up the book and you see it's like a series of like questions and thought experiments. And this is a girthy little book, but uh, it's not a lot of words in here. A lot of 25 point font in there. Let's just say it's like, it was what I used to do in high school at like 1230 AM, the night of a term paper. I would sit there for hours and just like figure out the font combos that would get me to the page (laughs) count. The author of this book is, you know, generating, has an excellent business with high dollar engagements. There's also this book that I recently picked up from six to seven figures by Austin Netsley, who runs a coaching program, like a high ticket item. And when you read these books, I think it could be inspired if you have a service business, productized service, like how quickly you might be able to generate one of these books for your business with like a combination of writers, researchers and stuff, and then kind of putting interviews and like putting the polish on at the end as you, the founder. A lot of our businesses are so very niche that we're seeing people make millions of dollars a year from just events, communities, referral networks and stuff like that, I think you could potentially really supercharge that by maybe investing $10,000, $20,000 and getting a book like this created relatively quickly that really focuses on just a few hundred people in the world really would need a solution to that problem or maybe a broader market. And I think it's something that I think uh, has long been part of the playbook, Ian. Yeah, it has. When you read these books and you see that they're exactly the length you need them to be, 20,000 words. It's like two epic, three epic deep dive blog posts. It's not, you know, walk me through countless case studies and examples so that you can work with uh, whatever name your popular publishing company. You can make it look professional nowadays. Yeah. And when you go to those events, you can get it into the hands of your prospects. I think it's really powerful marketing. The punchline for me is a couple of things. One is that if you have a high ticket item like these people do, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the reason for that is basically you can replace your sales team or at least a portion of your sales team with this book, right? So just classic, classic stuff. And we should do it, Dan, which is uh, basically you write a book about all the problems and how hard they are to solve. And then you probably even lay out a bunch of the solutions to the problems. And if you're 
Need some help implementing these solutions? Well, here's the service on the back end. Yeah, you do what you do on a great sales call, you know? You tell some stories, you book some podcast guests, and you give them away <laughs> the product for free. Next topic. One of the things I just wanted to flag up here, Ian, for quick discussion is this concept of the four-day work week. There's even a job board called four-day jobs or whatever that only does, now all of a sudden, it's a values thing. Like you say who you are as a company, we're a great company for employees. We only work four days a week. And I've seen great companies who have really cool teams and awesome brands do this. It's got to be run by the Europeans. Is it the Europeans that are behind this? I'm telling you that this become a thing to get people to want to work for your company, to show them the respect. And it's not a new thing, but I think it's actually overrated for remote knowledge work companies, knowledge workers. And I also think the teams don't particularly like it. And here's why. I think sticking to these days a week stuff is a mechanical metaphor. And I think actually the way weeks unfold in a knowledge company is a little bit more biological or organic. So I think what you see in a company like ours, for example, is like on Mondays and Tuesdays, I'll often work that full intense eight hours at the desk, sometimes a little bit more. I hate to admit it on the Tropical MBA but sometimes I'll do a little bit more if it's an intense time. Sometimes not at all, of course. We're the boss. Sometimes we take off, ride our mountain bikes. But then by Wednesday, you've launched what you're launching. The projects are going by Thursday. You're cleaning up the pieces. You're starting to do some more reporting. And let's look back on what we created earlier in the week. And then Friday is often a half day. And I think this is important for knowledge workers because if you don't come in on Friday and just take care of the email and stuff, your client stuff just sits too long. And I think that builds up pressure and stress on the team. And I also think it cuts down on the amount of creativity you can have in the rest of the days. So if you do this experiment, and you're thinking about organizing your meeting cadences or your operational rhythm in your company. I think you can bake this stuff in and give like kind of broad office hours expectations, which is like, hey, Thursdays and Fridays, like we don't need to sit here and like be intensity Ian all the time. We can, we can chill out. We can relax ourselves into the weekend, but we should come in every morning and make sure that we're there for our projects, there for our clients. I think that lowers the stress and ultimately gives the experience you're wanting to give anyway. Well, I just think all this stuff is just going to flip around the other way. If I had to guess, Dan, we're going to have companies that allow smoking at their desk in the office. Like that's going to be a culture. (laughs) Probably a different company is going to allow you to re-microwave fish for lunch in the office as well. Everybody knows that smell. I love it that these cultures are emerging, you know, it gives so much room for everyone to express themselves in ways that are important. My guess is the four day work week comes from an industrial thing that got kind of co-opted by the tech space is a cool thing. It's like, yeah, if you're commuting to work and you're putting on overalls and you're putting on the safety goggles and everything, yeah, let's do it four days a week, give you the long weekend. Because guess what's going to happen on hour nine and 10 on when you're packing boxes? You're going to pack the same number of boxes. You know how I know that? Because I did that before. That's how it works in a factory. But it's not how it works when you're sitting cramming on emails. You know what happens on hour nine and 10 when you've been working on emails? You don't do the freaking emails. You go to YouTube and watch YouTubes about GTD or something, if you're lucky. I thought you were going to say you CC all your customers on a BCC email, because that's (laughs) what I would do. (laughs) Finally, deep work in the remote team, a related topic, something I've been thinking about lately and want to get your perspective on because we've been talking to so many 
operators and founders of remote companies. I found that as we proliferate more functional teams and this and that, and like, we got to have a call about this. And then people are all around the globe. You get this kind of like grenade effect on the road, like where there's like all these just little meetings everywhere. And I forgot about this, the basic simplicity of the maker manager schedule. And that I think it's important for great operators to have clear time on their schedules, time to sit down, to dig into important strategic concepts. In fact, I think you could describe like scaling up, traction, EOS, all like all this is like you're paying somebody to hold your hand and to say, yes, it is important to have like deep maker time. If you're a creative, you call it maker. If you're an operator, you call it strategy time, strategic time. Correct. I just recently moved a bunch of my meetings into Monday, all the kickoff functional meetings that I'm involved in. Because I was like, man, my Tuesdays are wrecked. And by the time I get over to Wednesday, I haven't created anything for the whole week. I haven't created anything. I'm putting off that document I said I was going to create that combines the financials with this new strategy that I want to implement and convinces the key stakeholders. Like, that's going to take me three and a half hours to put that together. When, when does the three and a half hours happen? And so I'm just mentioning this to the audience in case you found yourself in a similar situation where like these big things that aren't urgent, but they are important. They're just getting grenaded out by random calls from people from all around the world. That's going to be a priority for me here as we get the end of Q1. I want to be much more disciplined about my schedule in Q2. Boom. It's been an hour. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining me, boss, man. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.